Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the three-legged stool podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on February 16th, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined as always by my co-host, who's just off the phone with the Russian ambassador. <laughs> Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland's Francis King Carey School of Law and within 100 miles of the Russian compound. <laughs> so this week on Twill, two excellent guests. Uh, first of all, Joanna Sachs, Professor of Law and Co-Director of the Institute of Health Law Studies at California Western School of Law in almost always sunny San Diego. Her research is at the Nexus of Law and Science, and uh, her most recent articles uh, address ways to incentivize the advancement of science and protect scientific inquiry and innovation, and she's done a lot of work on GMOs. Welcome, Joanna. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And Diana Winters is Professor of Law at the famous Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis. Her research involves issues of food safety and the decision-making processes of federal agencies. She's currently visiting at Southwestern Law School in pretty sunny Los Angeles, where I understand many of her law students are Twill listeners. If you're listening to this episode, I'm sure uh, your grade will depend upon it. Welcome to you all, and you're extremely lucky to have such a wonderful teacher. Hi there, Diana. Hi, thanks for having me. And you're right, they are required to listen to Twill, so they Yay. better hear this. And if and, so that's that's that should get us into double figures. <laughs> oh, yes. that, those those advertising dollars, Frank, I can already taste them. <laughs> Both of you write and talk a lot about food law, and I suppose somewhere in the um, the archives of Fiddly, there must be some sort of joke like the device person and the drug person walked into a bar, had a drink, and couldn't remember what the F in FDA stood for. Ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I thought that caricature would be a good place to start. Why and how is food regulation different? You know, what's what's the, the structural regulatory picture here? And has that changed over time? Is it changing now? Is it defensible? The food regulatory structure is very different than the drug and device regulatory structure. Um, food is less regulated at point of entry. There's very little pre-approval of of food or components of food. The FDA has been making noises towards increasing that. However, a draft guidance was issued in late 2016 that took the wind out of those sales. More of food is regulated after it enters the market. If there's tend to be safety concerns, it it's a reactive process. The FDA will respond if there is enough of an outcry is what we've seen. It is a pretty complicated structure because we rely so much on importing different types of food and we rely on our international partners and their food safety mechanisms. Uh, and so it just functions really differently than the drug and device components where there's a lot of pre-approval, clinical trials, safety and efficacy is tested before market entry. That's not really what happens with food. With food, the, the food enters the marketplace, uh, whether it's uh, from the U.S. or internationally. And as Diana indicated, it's really only once there could be like an outbreak of listeria or other food safety issues that the FDA then 
then comes in um, and would be involved with pulling something off the market. Uh, it does have some, the FDA does have some guidances about manufacturing processes, and there are um, rules that manufacturers are required to comply with, but uh, those aren't often uh, at play until um, something is wrong in the food supply. So it's just a really different regulatory regime. And I think most consumers are actually less familiar with the food regulatory regime than they are with the drug and device regime that probably gets a lot more press. I think there are two different things we're talking about here, which are food safety and manufacturing processes, and then the means of vetting food additives and food components. There's very little pre-approval of food additives and food components, although there is a regulatory structure in place. A lot of food additives enter the marketplace through a system called GRASS, or generally recognized as safe, in which case manufacturers are able to notify FDA that components they are adding to their food products are generally recognized as safe, either because the scientific community agrees or because the products were in common usage before 1958. But then there's also food safety. And FDA does have more of a hand in overseeing food safety. In 2010, the Food Safety Modernization Act went into effect, which was the biggest shift in FDA's food safety authority since the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act in the late 30s. The Food Safety Modernization Act gave FDA a lot more power to oversee the safety of food at the point of manufacture, most specifically to oversee the manufacture and packaging of produce. And so what we're seeing now and what we've seen over the last half decade is the implementation of rules putting FISMA, the Food Safety Modernization Act, into effect. And so FDA is trying to shift to more of a preventive stance in terms of food safety than a reactive stance. And we haven't yet seen that happen, but that's partly because these rules and the implementation of FISMA are just getting off the ground. You know, in preparing for today's show, I was looking at this very recent GAO report on food safety in general. The main theme of the report was that a national strategy is really needed to address the fragmentation and federal oversight. And GAO noted that they had told OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, that it really needed to work on coordinating federal agencies and uh, you know, urging them to coordinate with like all the non-federal agencies that work on a lot of food safety issues. And the OMB just completely failed. They'd been warned in 2011. They were told again in 2014. And, and the report now just says that OMB has really failed this uh, uh, coordination role. I'm wondering, you know, in terms of your views on uh, to what extent is this a problem that the FDA is going to need to take the lead on? To what extent is this really the leadership is in, say, uh, among torts lawyers like Bill Marler, who you know go after food poisoning cases, or is this sort of an all of the all of the above uh, situation? Food manufacturers are very worried about food safety. Uh, Diana and I were both at a food law forum at Southern Methodist University in September, and this was a large topic of conversation among lawyers and business people 
people in the food industry. They too are very worried about recalls and contamination because it costs them a lot of money and it hurts their brand name if they have to do a recall. So the private sector is or should be incentivized to have safe manufacturing processes just from an economic perspective, regardless of the moral perspective. I suppose I could see there are some incentives in terms of avoiding tort liability, but on the other hand, it just seems in terms from a consumer perspective, I mean, I I really don't know as a consumer. It reminds me a bit of the HHS wall of shame for health data privacy breaches. Um, when I go to my, a hospital, say, for a surgery, I don't think I or almost any healthcare consumer consult with the HHS wall of privacy breaches. So I'm just wondering, like, in terms of the economic model of self-regulation here, were there other elements or was it mainly based on tort liability? You talked about the wall of shame. I mean, think about Chipotle when they had several outbreaks, their business tanked. I mean, they're only just recovering now. So I think uh, when something hits the news, when there's some sort of recall, it can affect either a specific retailer or an industry, and there's a ripple effect to that. Like a couple years ago, there was a big outbreak of, um, it was a foodborne illness outbreak, and the finger was pointed at tomatoes. And it ended up not being tomatoes. It ended up being some sort of pepper. But the tomato industry suffered quite a bit. So I think there's the public relations factor. OMB was pointing to what is kind of a famous fragmentation of the food regulatory system that there have been attempts to fix for decades now. The food system is regulated and overseen by something like 17 different agencies that don't coordinate. Often there are, if not repetitive regulations, there will also be conflicting regulations in the food safety area. And so priorities have not been focused on streamlining this system. Every once in a while, somebody mentions it and everybody gets really excited. Obama's administration brought up the idea of consolidating oversight into one agency. Everybody got really excited and nothing happened, like nothing ever happens in terms of consolidating the agencies. And so until that happens, I think it will continue to be on all of the above situation, like you said, that with a patchwork of regulation filled in by public relations and tort litigation. Do you think that the um, the increase in sort of scientific issues impacting food, Joanna in particular, you've done a lot of work on GMO and GE foods. Do you think that's going to push FDA into more regulation, more perspective rather than ex post facto uh, regulation? GMOs, it's colloquially, they're colloquially called uh, GMOs, but the more precise scientific term would probably be genetically engineered food. They're actually regulated by the FDA, the USDA, and the EPA. And I think, although not on the food safety side, what Diana was getting at is that there's all these agencies that are involved. And with genetically engineered foods, the EPA cares about pesticide use. 
and the USDA cares about plant pests, and the FDA cares about food safety. And so they all have their domains. But if you want to get a genetically engineered food product on the market, unlike all other type of food, that genetically engineered food has to go through a pre-market regulatory approval process. Technically, the FDA has the authority to put um, other types of food through a pre-market regulatory process, but they really don't. Um, and the FDA has a voluntary consultation process for genetically engineered foods, but it's not really voluntary because everybody goes through it. And so you have these three agencies, and they care about different things. And so the food product has to go through multiple agencies, which is very costly. It's estimated to take about 13 years and $136 million to go through these, this regulatory review, which has been really problematic for genetically engineered foods because it keeps a lot of small players out of the marketplace. And I know that genetically engineered foods are very controversial with consumers. Consumers, but they're not controversial with scientists. Scientists uh, believe that genetically engineered foods are as safe as their conventional counterparts. Uh, and so there's been a lot of calls in the scientific community and those that are well-versed to not make, uh, to have such strong regulatory hurdles. In other words, the regulatory review is uh, too strong, it's not really needed, and the food can safely enter into the marketplace. And this is kind of a much more complicated uh, backstory about why it's likely to be as safe as conventional food, but it really brings up the costs and we end up only enjoying the benefits of kind of big commodity crops. And we can't use this uh, scientific technique to solve kind of local niche problems that local farmers have, like let's say that they have a particular fungus that hits a particular region of the country or a particular type of pest. They're kind of kept out of the marketplace. Um, and so they may lose crop yields and it, and it may be more unsustainable for them to farm because they're not able to take advantage of genetically engineered technology. What are the politics here or the ma who are the major stakeholders that would be uh, maybe driving what you seem to be labeling as a sort of counter-scientific approach. I recall the, the absolute uh, horror, indeed, prohibitions in the European Union about GMO foods. And of course, there uh, you have a, um, an incredibly powerful traditional farming lobby. Um, I would have thought that in this country where we have farm conglomerates uh, looking for scientific uh, methods for increasing yield and so on, that they would be stakeholders who would be really pushing to reduce the kind of regulation of GMO GE. So let me unpack that a little bit. If, um, if I understand it correctly, Europe actually imports a lot of um, GMO feed for its uh, animals, but they don't grow it themselves. So they have uh, a little bit of a mixed bag on their, uh, you know, they have a very strong anti-GMO uh, policy, but I don't think it's that they're not importing GMOs for the feed for their animals. Uh, so that is a little bit odd in Europe. Um, here, a couple years ago, the White House released a memo calling for the three agencies, the FDA, EPA, and USDA, to work together to, to uh, uh, reframe what's been called the coordinated framework, which is how these three agencies regulate GMOs 
GMOs um, to look at the three decades worth of science to see if we can lower the regulatory hurdle. And these agencies have gone out and actually met with a lot of agriculture scientists in the public sector uh, to, you know, listen to their needs. Um, I think one of the things that's interesting, one of my colleagues here commented to me recently that it's maybe one of the few times that the public uh, scientists, that is the scientists at publicly funded agriculture schools, are perhaps on the same side as industry. That doesn't always happen. Um, and so uh, it's hard to know which lobbying group, you know, has uh, the ear of Congress. Is it the consumers who are kind of being told that uh, GMOs are unhealthy? Or is it the scientists and then some large corporations that are saying, no, no, they're fine, they're safe. And so you have actually tension between the consumers uh, versus the scientists and some of the agriculture companies. And uh, it's unclear who's winning right now. There's a lot of um, tension between those groups, and it's unclear who Congress is going to respond to. But initially, about 30 years ago, when uh, when the coordinated framework was first started, nobody really knew um, whether GMOs were going to be safe. Uh, and there were concerns that, for example, um, that plants normally have toxins and allergens that are they, that they normally have, and that if you messed with their DNA using biotechnology, that you would raise the natural levels of toxins and allergens to such a level that you know it would be unsafe for humans to consume. But after decades of research, that hasn't happened. So a lot of the safety concerns that created this big regulatory framework. 30 years ago have where, where they were hypothesizing that they, there would be these large safety concerns. The data has indicated that those safety concerns don't exist. And I think that consumers, for a variety of reasons, don't really trust GMOs. And that's been one of the big problems that's blocking, I think, a, a regulatory structure that should really match the science. One of the interesting things here that Joanna mentioned is, you know, who has the ear of Congress? And one of the things we've seen in terms of labeling issues is that labeling bubbled up in state legislatures, which I think are more responsive to local populations. You know, you have people worried, just as Joanna said, worried about GMOs for ungrounded reasons or potentially ungrounded reasons, but who were able to get the ear of state legislators. And there was something like 70 different bills floating around to label GMOs before Vermont's law went into effect. And the federal labeling bill, which was passed last year, actually diluted a lot of those state laws and had a very strong preemption provision, thereby disallowing any more state legislation in terms of labeling of these genetically engineered ingredients. It deflated the labeling impetus by allowing for things like barcodes on food that people will then have to scan them so that they could then go to a website to see whether or not there were genetically engineered ingredients 
ingredients in the product. And so we're still waiting to see how USDA implements the federal labeling law. But I think we saw here Congress, our federal Congress actually being more responsive to industry concerns, which, as Joanna said, dovetailed in this instance with scientists. Work that both Diana and I have done on labeling uh, is very complementary. And I think the, the question with labeling is that if consumers want to uh, know what's in their food, if they want labels, that seems fine and they should understand what's in their food. And the label should uh, neutrally give them that information. And a colleague of mine and I recently conducted a study on different types of foods that are that have different labels and asked com- consumers or asked participants in the survey to respond about their associations with the health, safety, and environmentally friendliness of different labels. And to just really briefly summarize the results, um, consumers or the participants in the study found that the labels organic, natural, low-fat and fat-free, and non-GMO, they found those to be safer, healthier, and more environmentally, more environmentally friendly than food labeled with a GMO label. And this was kind of an interesting result because for a number of reasons. One, it's that the consumers are uh, making associations with a GMO label that it's less healthy and less safe. And that's a disconnect with the scientific consensus. But on top of that, they make associations with the label natural. And the label natural has no regulatory definition. And the FDA has refused to define the label natural. And Diana's done a lot of work on this. But consumers make associations with that label. And so these labels are a proxy for something. They're a proxy for consumer associations. But the consumer associations are not, you know, they they think that if something's natural, that it's healthy. But of course, we know that arsenic is natural and other uh, things that are poisonous are natural. But that term natural works really well. And we also see that term natural in on the labels of things like dietary supplements, which are regulated as food by the by the FDA. So the labeling and kind of the state activity and the federal activity over labeling is much more uh, controversial and open to information and misinformation by consumers. So Diana, your your new piece on regulatory friction, you paint a picture of extremely heterogeneous uh, regulation, yet also with federal state friction. You give a nice shout out to federalism and, and describe this is a productive space with some interesting push and pull. Are you taking the same pitch on this as Joanna, therefore, as to... I, I didn't get the sense that her space was particularly productive with her description. The interaction between federal and state regulation can help to move food policy in productive directions. I think that we have to... Food policy is so heterogeneous that we have to parse what specifically we're talking about. So in terms of labeling, having a patchwork of labeling regulation is infeasible when we're trying to move products through a national marketplace. And the Nutrition Labeling and Education Act, which was passed in 1990, tries to eliminate this possibility by preempting state regulation in some labeling areas. But when you're dealing with other issues, 
issues, like for example, the humane treatment of animals, then you may see an interplay, a a productive interplay between local policy and national policy and a way for local policy to move national policy. I don't think any of this is going to be linear. The development of food policy goes in a lot of different directions, but I think the conversation that we see when we have local policy interacting with federal policy, even if that's in a context of conflict or or an adversarial context like litigation, I think the conversation is beneficial to both food policy and democratic engagement as a whole. Joanna, talking of uh, democratic engagement, uh, in in this new world order, where are the where are the developments going to be uh, in at a time of sort of uh, federal uh, anti-regulatory ideas and a lack of interest in in science? Uh, well, that's a really good question. I actually think it's a larger question. I'll I'll come back to the to the food in particular, but just as somebody who's been trained as a scientist, uh, it really concerns me the role of science, the respect towards evidence-based research, fact-based research being questioned is is really concerning because over the course of history, we lead better lives, we live longer, we live healthier than we have in the past. And a lot of that is due to science. And uh, there's been a lot of research on uh, how people perceive risk and people think that they actually uh, live in a more risky time or there's more risks associated with their current life than there were in the past. And that's not true. Um, And science has solved a lot of the reasons why we live in a less risky place. For example, vaccines would be an example of that. I mean, our risk of getting a vaccine preventable disease is gone down because of vaccines. And I worry about the scientific challenges to vaccines as a public health issue. The GMOs, um, to, to go back to just the food regulation and GMOs, is that we have a growing population uh, and we have to feed our growing population worldwide. And malnutrition is the leading cause of uh, child, um, uh, not uh, ch- child uh, of death and not um, and uh, disabilities. And so we have to feed a, a growing world and we have to figure out how to do that. And uh, biotechnology as applied to our food supply may be one way in which we can address issues of food availability, food sustainability, uh, making our food more nutritious, particularly in places where they have some sort of deficiency in their diet, we can add it into one of their staples. And there is a group in, I think they're in Great Britain, that is actually collecting literature about the pro-GMO and the anti-GMO movements to to they're trying to analyze the history as we live through it to see you know what factors might be at play that could kill uh, the GMO industry or, or public acceptance of genetically engineered foods and and how that's done and we've seen that a little bit with the nuclear we've seen it with the nuclear energy industry where consumer concerns about nuclear energy have really hurt the flourishment of that type of clean and safe energy so I guess my concern is um, I I am concerned about us being in a more anti-science 
intense rhetoric, political world. Um, I think that advances in science, while they haven't always been beneficial, have on balance been beneficial. And I'd really hate to see um, a move away from science to solve really big problems. When you talk about food safety and food security, you know, the FDA, frankly, does a pretty good job of food safety and food security, especially with all of our imports. And I don't know how that's going to change. I'm, I, I, I don't, frankly, I wish I had a, a, a ball I could look into and see if it's going to get worse. And I, I hope that's not the case, um, particularly because I believe that the FDA has to really rely on its international partners in order for us to have a safe food supply. So I guess just to wrap up, one of the things that we were thinking about was what are five things that law students and professors, practitioners should know about food law? It's a difficult question. I think food law, (laughs) I mean, number one, I think food law is a ton of different things. I mean, food law is environmental law, food law is agricultural law, food law is property law, and antitrust law and FDA law and more. It's a great lens to look at the way our regulatory systems work together, both vertically and horizontally. Um, Also the way common law works with regulation. So it's a fantastic learning tool to use food law as a subject to look at these different areas of the law. Well, I would agree with everything that Diana said, uh, and she said it well. I mean, it is actually a really exciting area of law, and people don't usually think about food law, but it does incorporate um, every uh, so many parts of our economy and businesses and corporations, and these f- and farms are run as businesses, and we all eat, so our food supply is important to us, and it has ecological concerns and scientific concerns. And uh, there's probably room for everybody at the table for all different types of food, Uh, whatever it is that they like to eat or don't like to eat really impacts us locally, statewide, nationally, and internationally. So I, I can't imagine that there's anything in food law that law students shouldn't know about. I wanted to just add to some of the things I think we should watch in the area of food law with the new administration and with a turn away from funding our federal regulatory agencies, which we which we may see. Um, I think we need to keep an eye out to see how the Food Safety Modernization Act continues to be implemented. I think that FDA still it's still going through the guidance process for quite a bit of the regulations that have been issued pursuant to FISMA. And if the executive order that asks agencies or requires agencies to get rid of two regulations for every regulation that is issued, then that's something to watch to see how FISMA implementation goes forward. And I also think it's important for us to watch the process behind the Farm Bill, which is up for reauthorization in September 2018 and always takes years to get organized. And so I think that will be an interesting process to watch. And with the fervent hope that we have not spoiled your appetite, that was the Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professor Saxon Winters. Great fun having you on the pod. 
Uh, Diana, you can be found on Twitter at Diana3000. That's right. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. And Joanna, great job. Thank you so much. Thank you. We post our show notes at twill.com. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank, uh, where did the Russian ambassador say you can be reached this week? Only at Health PI this week. (laughs) How disappointing. (laughs) Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. (laughs) 